صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Happy New Year, listeners. Good morning to you, and thank you for joining Palestine Remembered in 2021. We've got some very exciting news. We've got a fresh guest straight from Palestine, Dr. Yara Hawari, who is a senior policy analyst at Shabaka. She's a Palestinian academic, a writer, and a feminist activist. She's a superstar, and she's joining us live from Palestine today. Good morning, Yara. Hi, Nasser. Thank you for having me on the program. Thank you so very much for joining us. Now, Yara, you wrote, you've done a lot of work, obviously, for, for Palestine and Shabaka. Recently, you wrote about the vaccinations, COVID for Palestinians within the apartheid state of Israel. Now, Israel has always claimed that over a third of their population have been vaccinated. Something like a million now have had both courses of the vaccination. What's it like there as a Palestinian within Israel? And what's it like all over? So, yeah, so Israel's had been praised around the world um, for its BD uh, vaccination rollout. And it has indeed managed to to give the vaccine to quite a large number. Uh, and it's received a lot of praise for this. And, but what it hasn't really received a lot of attention is that Israel, despite its responsibilities under international law, is not vaccinating the Palestinians in uh, the occupied territories, i.e. the West Bank and Gaza. A lot of people sort of questioning, well, why is it their responsibility? And that completely ignores the fact that Israel under international law as a recognised occupying regime is supposed to provide that healthcare to Palestinians. So it's supposed to provide the vaccine and facilitate the delivery of the vaccine to the West Bank and Gaza. On the side of the Palestinian Authority, you know, they've been really trying to scramble to find vaccination deals and uh, they have apparently secured four, including the the Russian vaccine um, called Sputnik. But as of yet, we really don't know when that vaccine is supposed to arrive. There's been sort of trickles here and there. There was a a delivery of 5,000 vaccines the other day that were brought in by um, one of the top people in the PA. But of course, 5,000 for a population of 5 million is absolutely nothing. And we know that it's very likely that 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 small batch of vaccines will go to the top echelons of the, the Palestinian Authority. So it's quite worrying the situation you know Palestinians are in the West Bank and Gaza are feeling very uncertain very unsure very anxious because they don't know when the the vaccine rollout is going to happen here and of course this is all in the context of a really dire healthcare system it's you know already well past the maximum in terms of its capacity with the current covid cases it was already you know really pushed to the brink before covid because of the israeli military occupation and um, the de-development of the palestinian healthcare system so overall it's quite a worrying situation people are not feeling very secure which i guess is 
a fact of Palestinian life in security and precarity are really characteristics of, of common Palestinian life um, in the West Bank, in Gaza um, and within the Green Line. So it's not not positive, uh, to say the least. You spoke about the de-development of the Palestinian healthcare system. I mean, the Oslo Accords were in 93. Or listened to an, an interview with the health minister out of the BBC, and he spoke about his obligations was to his citizenry. Edelstein was the, the minister. He said Israeli citizens are the ones that pay taxes to the Israeli health system. They're the ones that I'm responsible for. Um, until I've vaccinated every single Israeli, I'm not even considering vaccinating Palestinians. Anyway, it's up to the PA to do that. Completely removing himself from any sort of moral or legal obligations, which, I mean, the Geneva Convention, the UN, they all clearly stipulate the role of the occupier in facilitating that to the occupied person. I was going to say, I mean, the Israeli regime and Israeli officials are really experts in sort of um, shifting the responsibility um, to Palestinians for their for their own oppression. It's something they do really par excellence. But what they conveniently miss out is that, well, firstly, the Oslo Accords do not trump international law. International law very clearly states, as you mentioned, that the occupying regime has a responsibility to the people it occupies for providing adequate health care. But it's also incredibly hypocritical that the Israeli regime rolls out the Oslo Accords as an excuse, saying that the Palestinian Authority has to provide for itself, when actually this is the only time that they, you know, go back to the Oslo Accords. What about what about all the other aspects of the Oslo Accords? You know, the Israeli regime has undermined the Oslo Accords for, for decades now. So for them to, you know, roll this out as an excuse is incredibly hypocritical. And it's also not accurate. You know, the Oslo Accords also that Israel has to work with the Palestinian authorities in securing um, the vaccine and that Israel, and actually under the Paris Protocol, Israel is not allowed to allow a vaccine in that hasn't been approved for its own population. So this also brings into question the the Sputnik vaccine, the the Russian vaccine, which hasn't been approved by Israel for use on its own population. This really raises questions whether this will be allowed for mass use um, in the Palestinian territories. But it really, you know, it's just very demonstrative of how Israel tries to shirk its responsibility, picking and choosing international law or past agreements when it wants, um, whilst completely undermining them uh, simultaneously. If they wanted to apply the Oslo Accords, we would have had a state 24 years ago or something. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, the Oslo Accords had a five-year framework for um, the establishment of a Palestinian state and we're decades past that due date so I think it's very hypocritical indeed. I note also that the regime, the Israeli regime, is vaccinating settlers in illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian West Bank alongside next door to villages, you know, within tens of feet perhaps of Palestinians. Some people are getting the vaccine, some people aren't. I mean, that's a part of it. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of the examples which show the Israeli regime's apartheid policies, the fact that it's vaccinating illegal settlers in the West Bank uh, and not Palestinians. And a lot of commentary has been about, you know, sort of medical apartheid. And this is really just one facet of the Israeli regime. I think the fact that it it uses apartheid to contain and maintain the indigenous population allows it to also exclude Palestinians from healthcare that offers its own population, the settlers. Have you got any word on the situation in Gaza? 
Yeah, the situation in Gaza is not is also not good to say the least. We know that the Gazan healthcare system has been, you know, deliberately targeted since the the beginning of the siege and targeted in multiple ways. You know, either through military bombardments, indeed, over the you know various military campaigns taken by the Israeli army in Gaza, we've seen them directly target Palestinian hospitals. And so the hospitals in Gaza are not only un, uh, understaffed, under capacity. They're also, you know, many of them are in in ruins, and so they're operating, you know, in in part building structures, and and they're, they're they're operating at below capacity. Actually, they do not have enough medication. They do not have enough equipment to deal with all the the ailments, illnesses pre COVID, and COVID just added that you know, really extra strain on, on a healthcare system that is already dilapidated. Just to give you an ex- example, in Gaza, you know, treatment for cancer is basically um, not possible because of Israeli restrictions on what kind of um, equipment is allowed into Gaza. And so Gazan cancer patients are really at the, the mercy of the Israeli regime um, when they have to apply for permits to go and get treatment in Israel or elsewhere. So the situation, you know, since COVID has just gotten worse. We know Gaza is one of the most populated um, areas on the planet. Uh, And this also, you know, makes it very difficult to maintain social distancing, um, to maintain quarantine and isolation. So it's a very, you know, desperate situation. And it has long been a desperate situation in Gaza and places like Gaza, not just Gaza, but around the world, should be prioritized for the vaccine. But unfortunately, they're not being prioritized. And even though there is this um, WHO program called COVAX for so-called developing countries and and vulnerable populations, it is taking a long time um, to roll that out. And it's expected that actually that you know the program itself will be lacking and that many countries and territories won't actually see um, the vaccine until 2024. It's incredibly, you know, worrying. But, you know, the situation in Gaza has long been desperate. So sad not to forget all of the other Indigenous brothers and sisters and poor people around the world, occupied people, and the challenges they face getting this access, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I just want to say that, you know, COVID really demonstrates or highlights the structures of inequality all around the world. It's not just in Palestine, but we're really seeing, um, you know, the nastiness of capitalism, of colonialism really play out within this pandemic. You know, countries that are wealthy are getting the, the vaccine first. You know, vulnerable communities, it's predicted, won't get the vaccine for a long time. And it's really, it's devastating. People should be prioritised not on, you know, citizenship or where they're based, but on their vulnerability. And and that's not the case. You know, we even have stories of, you know, rich people in the States and Canada buying vaccines or, you know, flying to remote communities, vulnerable communities to get the vaccine. There's all kinds of stories like this all across the world. And it's it's really devastating. And I think it highlights just how awful of a, of a world we live in, you know, where people are prioritized according to, to their wealth and to their citizenship. You speak to that structure. It's actually rich people spread the disease. Rich people then can self-isolate in their you know estates and their large homes. Rich people can get the best medical care. But then it sweeps through poor communities because they live so much closer to each other. They don't have the financial capacity to not work and go back into employ. And so it really devastates those communities so terribly. Just to go back, and I, I really 
want to make something very clear, and, you, and it's and it's a huge part of your work. And I know I've read some stuff about the de-development of the healthcare system in Palestine. We'll talk about Gaza, and de-development means not giving permits, not allowing doctors to train and get hours up. It's not allowing equipment to be bought. It's not allowing extra beds to be put in place. It's a whole raft of things there. But then when we talk about Gaza in the siege, I mean, it's beyond Machiavellian. Not only have we got de-development there, we've got pinpoint uh, nuclear armed state with drones picking things off. I had a, a, an argument with a Zionist recently about this COVID vaccine. He said, well, you know, the Israeli authorities can't vaccinate Gaza without the authority and an acceptance by Hamas and the PA. And I said to him, I said, hold on a sec, you barge into villages in the middle of the night and grab 12-year-olds without asking, no coordination. You arrest, you torture, you kill, you extrajudicially murder. Now, all of a sudden, you get the chance to help people and you want to coordinate that bit. The audacity of this sort of Zionism is beyond the pale, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's a false narrative that the Palestinian Authority is not willing to cooperate. You know, the Palestinian Authority has long cooperated on many things throughout its history and has even, you know, is, is even guilty of collaboration. So I think that's actually a false narrative. We saw the Palestinian Authority collaborate or coordinate with the Israeli regime at the beginning of the pandemic in which it um, coordinated the entry of internationally donated medical supplies. The PA has requested vaccines from, from the Israeli regime. So this narrative that the PA is not willing to, to coordinate or, or that Hamas is not willing to coordinate for the vaccine is a completely false narrative. There's no absolute no proof of that at all. And the, you know, the Palestinian authorities, both in the West Bank and, and Gaza, don't have a choice when it comes to coordination with Israel and in some areas because they control the borders. So if we're talking about, you know, entry of goods, you know, that 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 thing has to be coordinated. Uh, and so it's it's a false narrative and it's another example of sort of shirking the blame onto the Palestinian people, you know, blaming them for their own oppression. And it's done time and time again. It's victim blaming. Yara, let's let's pivot to apparently there's a apartheid going on in uh, Israel's practice. <laughs> Now, I didn't know this was going on, and many people are new to the party, but now that B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights organisation, State Department in the United States, constantly references on the odd occasion when they might uh, lambast or criticise the State of Israel, they've said that Israel is guilty of practising apartheid. I wish we'd known this. It's real. Can you believe that Israel's practising apartheid now that the Israelis have said so? I've always needed <laughs> Israelis to biologize my own lived experience. Listen, I think it's, you know, I think it's important that we, we point out that Palestinians have been using the apartheid analysis for a long time as a, as a framework to sort of describe their reality, not only um, because of the, the solidarity with the black struggle in South Africa and very similar and the recognition of very similar structures of, of oppression, but also because, and particularly after the fall of the apartheid regime in South Africa, it you know it presented a very successful model of struggle and, and a way out. But I, I think it's also important to note that Palestinians have also used the apartheid framework outside of its understanding within international law. Apartheid was defined by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in 2002 as, as inhumane acts committed in the context of a, and I'm reading, I'm not, this is not by memory, <laughs> committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. And what that definition allowed us to do was to take off the sort of 
South Africa lens and really apply a more generalized lens of apartheid. And often you hear Zionists and pros or advocates saying that, you know, because it doesn't look like apartheid in South Africa, it cannot be apartheid. But this definition by the Rome Statute allows us to, to, place, that, to place that lens on to Palestine because it's saying that they, not all apartheids have to look the same. They have to have, you know, key core tenants that they can also manifest and have different characteristics. And that's incredibly important. But what's more important is that Palestinians um, have long understood apartheid outside of international law. They've understood it in a much more radical sense, one that uh, understands the, the overarching structures as a settler colonial one and as apartheid simply as a tool used by the settler colonial regime to maintain and dominate the indigenous population, which is not as demographically small as they would like. So this is not a new framework uh, for us. It is admittedly a new framework for Israelis and, and some Israeli organizations. And so I understand the, uh, the want to feel positive about this move, especially because we are living through such a difficult and pessimistic time. But I think it's also important that whilst these people might be allies and really well-meaning, we also do have to question and constantly be critical about knowledge production spaces and which voices are privileged. You know, the fact that there was such a song and dance made about this, I think we can strategically use to our benefit. But we, you know, it's also bittersweet. It's hurtful. It's it's frustrating that we need an Israeli organisation really literally to legitimise what we've been saying for decades. And I think also, you know, it's important to, to critique, to critique even by allies and friends, analysis and, and papers that they put out. This Betselem paper wasn't a report, it was a position paper, meaning that it was short. But there were also some serious deficiencies in this report. And a few that were actually, I found quite problematic and, and offensive. Um, and, and perhaps I'll just you know, really point out the two that I really struggled with the most. Firstly, they're the complete failure to mention the word refugees. It, the, the, the word refugee doesn't appear anywhere in the paper. Instead, there's this term used, Palestinians living in other countries. And I really found that incredibly offensive. It was as if to say that, you know, in 1948, the majority of the Palestinian population went on holiday and voluntarily decided to stay away for seven decades. You know, they live in other countries, but that wasn't the case at all. They were uprooted and they were forced out of their homes or they fled out of fear for their lives. And that's why it's important that we hold on to that term refugee because it places responsibility on the aggressor, on the uprooter. And the failure to, to mention, to recognize refugees, I think you know, is very reflective of settler colonial anxiety about indigenous demographic. You know, I recognize that we do have friends and allies among the settler colonial population. I think that's important. But I think there has to be a lot of self-reflection and there has to be a lot of unlearning within that, that group of allies, friends, comrades. You know, this is something that they've learned that has been ingrained in them for a long time is to have that anxiety over indigenous demographics and it's a problem and then the second you know thing that I found really difficult with that paper that they you know how they framed the the way that they came to this recognition of apartheid they explained that you know recent political maneuvers have rendered the situation apartheid and they 
specifically point out the 2018 nation state law, which was which wasn't a law as such, but it was a, a sort of a statement that, that the Knesset passed that recognized the state of Israel as a state for Jewish people and not as a state for its citizens. And of course, that's a problem, especially when considering that over 20% of the population of Israel is Palestinian. But uh, and also they, they referenced the 2020 de jure annexation plans. And they said that these two events were very fundamental in in sort of changing their or shifting their analysis. But you know, I, I think that argument is incredibly flawed because the nation state law didn't bring anything new to the table, as I mentioned. You know, it really just crudely already presented what was already existed in Israel's basic laws, which is um, essentially Israel's constitution. And similarly with the annexation stuff, you know, this was a hype. De facto annexation already exists. So in reality, nothing has changed for the Palestinians. This has all along been a regime which utilizes apartheid to maintain dominance. So what I thought it was a bit cowardly, to be honest. Like, I thought that it would have been much more, it would have been braver to say that, you know, the situation hasn't changed, but we have changed. Yeah. Our politics has shifted. This new analysis and mandate that we're adopting is reflective of our shifting politics, not the shifting politics on the ground, because they haven't shifted. They're progressing and they're accelerating. But, you know, this then in 1948, Israel established itself as settler colonial project in the land of Palestine, and it utilized an apartheid system within the 48 lands. And then in 1967, it expanded that system onto the West Bank and Gaza. So this is not new. And I think it would have been much more genuine and appreciated by Palestinians um, had they been more honest. Now, I think obviously that's not to say that you know, we can't use this. I think, you know, as Palestinians, we should use this. This is at the end of the day, you know, we do need more people on board. Uh, we do have to use the fact that we don't have to accept it, but we can find ways, strategic ways to use the fact that an Israeli organization has now said this, we can use it to our benefit. Um, but I don't think we should shy away from critical conversations as well. I think another thing that was missed in the report, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no mention of colonialism. Yeah, that would have been too much, though, in our city. <laughs> that would have been too much. The unlearning of our allies. I mean, if you want to be an ally, the right place for an ally is in the back seat. Mm-hmm. I think they should be at the forefront of the struggle within amongst Israeli Jews. Mm-hmm. And I think that I very much see Israeli allies, you know, working within Israel. And I think this is a step towards that. But I also think that they there has to be a centering of Palestinian lived experience. And I think one example of a report which was much better at doing that was the Esquire report, which was compiled by Richard Folk and Virginia Tilly. Now, it's also not a perfect report, and politically and intellectually, there are a few points that I don't agree on. But I think, in t- you know, if we're, if we're going to judge apartheid reports, this was a much better report because it framed apartheid, well, it put the apartheid analysis within a de-territorial framework. In other words, it included the Palestinian refugees, and it centred each fragment of the Palestinian population or Palestinian people, each of their experiences, it centered the report around that. It divided it into subsections according to what each group of Palestinians experienced. And I think structurally that was a much uh, better way to, to look at apartheid. I think it was not only intellectually better, but also politically um, a much better way. We've got elections coming up 
Israeli and Palestinian. Exciting, isn't it? I'm about to win his 58 millionth term, so we don't have to talk about that one too much. What do you think is going to happen in, in Israel? Well, we can talk about both elections. I mean, I think in, in 48, like, uh, Bibi is working very hard um, to not only throw out his corruption charges, which has received very little attention, uh, but he is facing corruption charges, but he's very, working very hard to win, to win over a majority amongst the electorate. I mean, I don't think, I think he will obviously still have to form a coalition, but part of this vaccine drive has been part of Phoebe's campaign trail. He has been, you know, working hard so that he can say come election day that he has vaccinated nearly the entire population in Israel. And, and that will happen, you know, they're already on their way to, they're well over a, a third of, um, having vaccinated a third of, the population, um, and that will, you know, play to to Bibi uh, Netanyahu's benefit. So I'm not, you know, expecting huge changes there. I mean, it really just depends on 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 what kind of coalition he can build. But you know, something that's important to note is that the his opposition has been seriously weakened, and there is been attempts within Lukud to try and present a new leader and that has failed and there was also an attempt to form a strong opposition under uh, Benny Gantz and that has failed. The joint list, the the Palestinian Arab parties um, that came together in previous elections, that will crumble. I think we know that there is at least one party within the joint list um, that is expected to break away. So really, you know, the opposition to Netanyahu is not at all strong. It's really going to be down to sort of wheelings and dealings about the, what kind of coalition Netanyahu can scrape together. As for Palestinian elections, um, we are yet to know if they will go ahead. There's, you know, three different elections that have been proposed or put on the table. That's the PLC elections. The, the Palestinian Legislative Council elections, which are, have been scheduled for the end of May. There's the presidential elections, which have been scheduled for the end of July. And then there was sort of very vague talk about the PNC, PLO elections in August. There have been talk of Palestinian elections for a long time, and, and, and they've always been postponed or amounted to nothing. This is the first time that we have actual dates for Palestinian elections. Um, and so people think that they might actually go ahead. But, you know, if they do go ahead, these will not be free and fair elections. As you mentioned, Abbas, who is well past his electoral mandate, a decade past, has been the only candidate put forward by Fatah. It's the official candidate. And there will be probably very few um, opposition figures and you know the system the system in both the West Bank and Gaza one party systems and um, quite antithetical to democracy and also oppressive when it comes to political opposition so I really you know I think that these really are political theatrics I know that there is some hope and you know people are are trying to mobilize because I think people are thirsty, you know, Palestinians are thirsty for some kind of democratic practice. But I'm unfortunately going to be the party pooper here and say that, you know, I, I really think that this will just prop up the, the already existing authorities. I'm, sad, I'm sorry that we're finishing on such a somber note, uh, Yara. I know, I'm sorry. Thank you so very much for your time. And uh, I hope we can speak to you again sometime soon.
Inshallah, thank you. Uh, thank you to you, Nasser, for having me. The amazing Yara Hawari. What a superstar and further proof that our Palestinian women are just beyond compare. 2021 is sure to be a big year for Palestine. So many things happening. Trump gone. Uh, the first event, Free Palestine Melbourne. Free Palestine Melbourne. fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. If you go there, the first event is Wednesday the 10th of February at 8pm. And it's uh, an event regarding the normalisation between Palestine, Israel and the Arab world. So go to the Free Palestine Melbourne website, which is fpmelbourne.org. Look it up. Join us there, 8 o'clock, Wednesday the 10th of February, fpmelbourne.org. And to take us out, just a little bit of Fadal's, Anala'ansaki, ya Philistine. Oh, Palestine, I won't forget you. Yeah, I can't